Clovis, building a healthy life together. What's up, everybody? Justin Alt here with another episode of In Case You Missed It. This is the recap of the weekly Facebook Live AMA, and this one's just a little bit different because I am in Norway as this is being published, so I was not sure that I was going to be able to do an Instagram Live video. I wasn't sure that I would have access to that um, while I'm here in Oslo, Norway for the next two weeks. So I wanted to just go ahead and record this, give you a quick recap of AMA number 68. We talked all about oxalates. We talked about protein and ketosis, namely gluconeogenesis. We also talked about how to know when you're fat adapted and MCT oils impact on cholesterol levels. So first we talked about oxalates. I got a lot of questions about this. And oxalates are a family of chemical salts. They come from oxalic acid. And you can think of an oxalate as a, a molecule that grabs onto other molecules and changes their function in the body. So I like to picture it as a catcher's mitt. And these other molecules are like baseballs. So it's a negatively charged acid, so it attracts positive ions, and minerals are positively charged. So, for instance, calcium binds really well to oxalates, which makes calcium get a bad rap because things like kidney stones are blamed on calcium. But they're not calcium kidney stones. They're actually calcium oxalate kidney stones. Without the oxalate, the calcium kidney stone is not possible, so it's an actual calcium oxalate kidney stone. So the calcium is attached to that oxalate and then is transformed from a mineral into a toxin in the body. So again, oxalate is basically a molecule that grabs things. And calcium gets the blame for things like kidney stones, arthritis, or even plaque in the arteries. But again, it's not the calcium itself. It wouldn't be there without being bound to the oxalate. So Oxalates are found in all sorts of foods, the, the worst being some that are already removed from the Clovis approved foods list, which are beans, grains, bran, sesame and other seeds, peanuts, almonds, some other nuts, figs, kiwis, potatoes, but there's also a lot of Clovis approved foods that have oxalates as well, including things like Swiss chard, spinach, beets, kale, sweet potatoes, even chocolate, which is a huge bummer, black pepper, uh, cumin, turmeric. But this is another one of those reasons why the carnivore diet is so popular because people are trying to get these plant toxins out of their life. Now, you can cook some oxalates out, but they're always going to be present. Like you'd have to boil spinach for like 10 minutes straight to remove the oxalates and it would not be edible at that point. It'd just be smush. So the lowest oxalate foods are like meats, eggs, fats, and oils, and other non-plant foods. So again, this is, this is where these carnivores are really clinging to this oxalate argument, and I don't blame them, right? There are some safe veggies, things like, you know, avocado, which is technically a fruit, uh, bok choy, cabbage, cauliflower, garlic, lettuce, mustard greens, mushrooms seem to be pretty safe. So you could attempt something like a carnivore diet that only includes low oxalate vegetables, but only if you need to. And a lot of people will benefit from that. So what I talked about in this AMA is that human beings are just getting weaker. Our immune systems are really poor. Evolutionarily, I think it's just been generations of people eating crap poison food. And we're getting weaker as a species. All of a sudden, these things like oxalates that we should be able to clear from the body are causing tremendous problems and autoimmune conditions and all sorts of problems. So it's really tricky. Now, there are some people that that will need to avoid oxalates, and some people won't. There are people that will have catastrophic symptoms from these oxalates and need to get them out of their system and switch to something like a carnivore diet. But that's not necessary for everyone. So again, just like the carnivore diet, if what you're doing is working for you, you don't need to worry about trying something different, right? Just stick to what's working. It's totally cool. And then we moved on to gluconeogenesis, this idea that too much protein will kick you out of ketosis. So I tried to explain to people that that's not really how things work, particularly if you're fat adapted. If you are fat adapted and you're 
you're in ketosis, you're burning ketones for fuel, then eating protein, even if some of that protein does get converted into glucose, which is, the, again, this process of gluconeogenesis, creating new glucose in the body, that's really done based on demand. For instance, I tell a story about me doing jujitsu 24 hours fasted. So my glycogen stores are depleted. I go do a hard jujitsu workout and my blood glucose is actually higher after the workout than it was before the workout with testing. How is that possible if I'm not ingesting carbohydrates? Well, it just means the body is making glucose dependent on the demand. It needed glucose for the activity I participated in, so it created it. So think of glucose and ketones as really displacing one another, right? So if you have ketones in the blood and you are burning fat, then gluconeogenesis will happen to feed these cells called erythrocytes. These are cells in the body that can only burn glucose, right? So the ketones are not replacing glucose and the glucose is not replacing ketones. They more like displace one another, like displace, I guess, rather than replace. So the erythrocytes are going to suck up that glucose and use it because they have to or you'll die and everything else will rely on these ketones, okay? So this, they were asking this question about the work of Jason Fung in the obesity code. So Jason Fung's work, I think, gets bastardized in a lot of ways because he's really focusing. Again, this book is called The Obesity Code. He's focused on helping obese people, reversing insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, and full-blown type 2 diabetes. So that doesn't mean that his recommendations are just blanket across the board. You have these perfectly healthy people that are taking the recommendations that Jason Fung is giving to obese diabetics. It really just doesn't make much sense, right? So um, again, Dr. Paul talked about Paul Saladino talked about this in my podcast and he basically explained what would happen if protein really kicked you out of ketosis which is not what's happening here he just said that if the body were to do that you could actually die at the extreme end of things because the protein would turn into glucose insulin would activate and would turn off lipoprotein lipase which shuts down fat burning in the body the insulin would then shove all of that created glucose into the muscle cells and then the brain wouldn't have access to glucose or ketones and you'd die Right now, that's an extreme example of what would happen if that hypothesis were really true. But even clinical data shows that gluconeogenesis is actually not impacted in a significant way by dietary protein intake. It just isn't. So really, don't worry about this. Um, the other question was how to know if you're fat adapted, and this is tricky because there's really no answer to that unless you're an athlete and you have access to a metabolic ward where they can put you on a stationary bike and measure the carbon dioxide coming out of your breath and tell you which substrate you're burning for fuel at which heart rate, right? But most of us can't do that. There's really not a good test for are you fat adapted. Um, so for the average person, really fasting seems to be a good marker. Now, I'm not saying you should fast. I'm saying you can use fasting as a tool to figure out your metabolic health. For instance, if you go Clovis for 30 days and on day 31, you say, I'm going to test myself with a 24-hour fast. And in that 24-hour fast, you're starving and you're having carbohydrate cravings and you have brain fog and you're miserable. Well, there was probably some serious metabolic dysfunction because after 30 days of Clovis, you should be able to do a 24-hour fast, no problem. That means you're probably not fasting adapted. Full fat adaptation can easily take 12 weeks, particularly if you're a metabolically inflexible person dealing with obesity or being overweight or type 2 diabetes or anything like that. So unfortunately, I can't give you a hard and fast way to know that you're fat adapted, but fasting is a good little marker of how you're doing. The last question was, does MCT oil raise cholesterol levels? And cholesterol is a giant issue to tackle. I didn't really have time to do that in this AMA, but MCT oil and coconut oil can raise total cholesterol, but that doesn't matter. Um, people get hung up on this total cholesterol number because that's what conventional medicine tests because most doctors know nothing about lipidology. You need a full NMR lipid profile. That's the only way to know your full risk factors of cholesterol, and even those cholesterol risk factors 
aren't real risk factors without other factors in place. There are multiple factors to determine your cardiovascular risk, right? So coconut oil and MCT oil can raise total cholesterol, but it also raises HDL particle numbers and lowers LDL particle numbers, giving you a better ratio of, quote, good cholesterol versus bad cholesterol, which are kind of misnomers. But anyway, it's the best terminology we have. It can also lower triglycerides, which is super helpful. So Triglycerides, HDL particle number, LDL particle numbers, that's really what matters on your cholesterol profiles. So a normal doc will say, MCT raises cholesterol and that's bad, right? There's no nuance there. Details really, really matter. Particle size and particle number is what matters. Now, the other thing to remember is these other risk factors. The number one risk factor for cardiovascular disease is inflammation, not cholesterol, right? So you need inflammation for cardiovascular disease, period, right? So I have a genetic cholesterol condition. My genetic, my cholesterol levels are always high, like no matter what, right? It's something called hypercholesterolemia. So my functional medicine doctor, who is an expert in lipidology, describes it as my cholesterol is hay, cardiovascular disease is a fire. You need a spark. Without a spark, there can't be the fire, right? So that spark is inflammation and other risk factors. So anyway, there's just a lot to think about here with the lipidology of this whole piece. So higher fat diets when properly prepared, meaning no dairy, like a keto diet with no dairy, that actually lowers inflammation levels and thus lowers total risk for cardiovascular disease, sort of regardless of cholesterol numbers. So again, no blanket statements. I'm not a doctor. This is not medical advice. But just wanted to touch on this, does MCT oil raise cholesterol issue? So that was AMA number 68 in a nutshell. I hope this was helpful. This is in case you missed it. You can check out all the show notes at clovis.show. If you want to work with me, go to iamclovis.com slash start. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, I got a good thing somewhere, somewhere. But I closed my eyes and lost my way.